Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fish and Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend, and uh, today we got a, a good group of, of folks on, and we're going to be chatting about a topic that has uh, interested me for a while and is uh, interested in, in growing, I think, in uh, in its attention, especially in the outdoor hunting world so uh and fishing too so excited to see that we're gonna be talking about um lead free so lead free ammo north american lead non-lead partnership uh and that of which uh two of my guests are members in um so i will give a quick update and then we've got colin and Corey here we'll see what they've been up to and then we'll we'll get into the nitty-gritty uh, you guys, Leland and Chris, please feel free to jump in, laugh, comment, question, concerns, anything while we're chatting uh, through our updates. All good. So um, let's see. News for me since last podcast. So I uh, I'll, I guess I'll go into it. So doing a little bit of trout fishing at some of the lakes and rivers around here. So pretty excited about that. And um been doing a lot of uh, research on dry aging fish, and so that's uh, what I did last week. Uh, I dry aged some trout and then turned around and put it on the grill, and I used our new, soon-to-be-released uh, wild fish seasoning on it as I put it on the grill. Let me tell you, I uh, I was very interested in in the in this uh, aging process. Um, 
I uh, got it. There's a, a chef in Australia who's big into uh, whole fish butchery and treating fish as meat uh, versus looking at it as like its own separate entity. So he's like, well, if we dry age meat. Why not dry age fish? So uh, he's gotten uh, big into that. Josh Nyland is his name if you want to look him up. Um, trying to get him on the podcast. So Josh, if you're listening, uh, fair chance you may be. We'd love to have you on the show. <laughs> Um, but no, it motivated me because he does a lot with mostly saltwater fish and because he's Australia based, a lot of fish based in Australia and, uh, that part of the world. But I was like, you know what, if you can dry age, if you can dry age seafood, sea saltwater fish, goodness. And, you know, people cure and smoke salmon and cure and smoke trout. Like what if we did a bit of a dry age on a trout? And so I left the trout hole. Uh, just, you know, I, I gutted it, cleaned it out really well. Um, put a, a paper towel on the inside to kind of collect any of the moisture buildup. And then I put it uncovered in the fridge, uh, on a wire rack and let it set for about, uh, three or four days. And then, uh, you know, on that fourth day, it was great. Even still, like I smelled it, kind of did the, the test to text, test the texture, all that stuff. Like, no really alarming sounds, you know, from a culinary background. It's like, oh, this fish is bad. Like, I shouldn't eat this. And uh, so then fired up the old uh, pellet smoker, threw it on there at 500, uh, let it grill up nicely after rubbing it down with some of our new spice blend. And, um, man, I was impressed. It it was buttery, more buttery than I've ever had a, a trout before. And my wife said that to her it tasted a lot like salmon, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so pretty cool process. Uh, I think I'm going to put together a piece on, on my thoughts and go into a little more detail, but, uh, definitely fun. And then, uh, this week heading up to the mountains to do some fly fishing up in some of the Alpine streams and lakes. Uh, I'm going to take my Tinkara fly rod up there and, and hit it up. But also too, we just kicked off the summer, uh, magazine project. So we'll be working, uh, we just brought in a new in-house designer, uh, Seth, who's going to be helping us work through that. And, uh, also pretty excited. We brought on two advertising folks, uh, Jason Luna and Stu, uh, the, those fellows are going to be working through helping us uh, fill some ad space in the magazine and stuff like that. So super excited about that. If you know anybody who wants to do some advertising, send them our way. And then, uh, as always, I mentioned earlier the Spice Blend, but we've got the Pig Camp coming up in December. Uh, super excited about that. We're already starting to fill some slots. So if you're interested in coming to hunt wild pigs with us and learn how to shoot, uh, hunt, process, butcher, cook wild pigs in like a three-day weekend uh be sure to go over to the website and sign up because those seats are selling fast there's only 12 of them and we've already sold uh several so check that out and with that we'll go over to you colin hey everybody uh this is colin uh not too many updates for me uh i just got the wyoming jaw results back and i drew two doe pronghorn tags um we were talking about it before we started recording here. Uh, some people might not be too happy to hear about that because they <laughs> cut the number of tags, uh, what, roughly in half, right, Leland? Uh, yeah, you son of a gun. <laughs> yeah, so first time first time drawing or applying for Wyoming tags, uh, zero points, I ended up drawing two. Um, so yeah, looking forward to that. It should be, a, should be a good time down in Wyoming in October. And then we're just looking forward to the Oregon jaw results coming out later this week. 
should be supposed to be sometime around the 20th, maybe a couple days before, might be a couple days after. Um, hopefully get some good ones there. Other, other than that, uh, not much going on. I've got uh, my bitters recipes going right now, spruce tip bitters and Douglas fir bitters as well. I just as... I just started my spruce tip ones today. So oh, nice. Pretty stoked. Okay. Yeah. I'm using some uh, some Oregon-based vodka for it, so it's uh, you know trying to keep things local. Um, nice. And I got some some spruce tip syrup going too in the one of the windowsills. So, yeah, looking to uh, see how those turn out. Hopefully, make some good cocktails. Yeah, sounds like recipe for old fashions to me. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. That that's the point. Not everything needs to be a seasoning. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, I. I yeah yeah well i was just thinking that there's a great little distillery in portland that makes some really nice whiskeys that um with stone barn distillery makes some really nice kind of small batch whiskeys that would probably go real well with a spruce tip bitters Ooh, that sounds yeah good. we had uh this, this is a recipe taken from a guy that we met at rendezvous um just oh, a perfect. few weeks ago and uh he made some cocktails after the, I think it was like the bonfire night or something. Um, uh, yeah, they're pretty fantastic. Yo, uh, we were hanging out that night and you guys didn't invite me to join you for your cocktail. It wasn't my invite to give. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, might, I might be a little late on the spruce tips though. They have, um, I don't know if you'd call them bloomed, but they've opened up a little bit. So they're not like the real compact little ones. So, so I, we'll see. I was looking you know. at the same thing. And so uh, I, I was looking on um, the Forger Chefs on his website. He did like a little review on spruce tips. And he was still using like the full, fully opened ones. And so I went yesterday and I'm in the same boat as you. They're a little little later, but they're still softer than uh, than the like. Yeah, the still soft. one. Still very bright green, so that's what yeah. um, that's what I'm banking on. But uh, the Douglas fir ones are really nice too. Very soft, almost like feathery. Um, yeah, and they have a little bit different smell too. So I thought about combining hmm. them, but I kept them separate and see how those turn out too. Same recipe, same other spices in them, just uh, different, slightly different flavor. I'm excited to hear how that Douglas fir one came out. So I did uh, the blue spruce and white spruce. Um, okay, but Jamie Carlson is who you're you mentioned earlier so yeah. actually we're going to get jamie on the show hopefully here very soon when we talk about wild cocktails which i think is a fascinating topic because yeah. there's uh he opened my eyes this last rendezvous i was just like holy smokes this is great i mean but, we can um, talk about meat all day long but where, you, where it really gets interesting is uh <laughs> the other stuff right the cocktails the syrup. yeah yeah and uh cory what, what do you got going on for updates it's been a minute yeah, I've been kind of uh, MIA the past couple months, uh, so but I had a pretty good trout season this in, in PA this year, you know, caught some nice fish, and then starting to get into bass season here, I haven't got out too much though, um, but the, the reason that is, is I ended up with a Brittany, so I now have a Brittany puppy. That I'm gonna, I'm trying to train to become a bird dog, so we'll see how that goes. First time trying to do that, <laughs> um, and as I'm sitting here talking, or you know, listen to you guys talk, he just he 
peed on the kitchen floor. So, you know, if I if I don't answer your questions because I run in to, to get him to do something, but it uh, it's a slow process so far. But he's he's a good puppy, and uh, I'm excited to uh, hunt with him. We um, one of my good friends got uh, his litter one of his litter mates. So we've been, you know trying to train together we went to a bird dog club learning different techniques and stuff it and so i'm i'm really excited to get him out this fall is that where bird. uh is the bird dog club that's where a bunch of bird dogs hang around and eat kibble and talk about all their hunting days exactly yeah <laughs> how'd you know but uh, I, just a guess yeah so they they have so what's good about the bird dog club is they have uh homing pigeons so you can use the pigeons for training and you don't have to have, you know, your own coop. And then they have the electronic launchers and they have the, the acreage and everything that all the tools you need to do the training. And it's, you know, 20, 20 minutes up the road. So it's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So I'm hoping to take advantage of that. And, you know, since my friend has, has a pup the same age, uh, we can learn together figured it out together so so hopefully this fall i can uh get on some birds we have in pa they stock pheasants so they they stock pretty pretty heavily in in my area but then we also have a grouse uh roughed grouse season although the the population is declining a little bit um so the season has been shortened the past few years i, I don't i think it might be only a week or two long now but uh, just you know, just getting out there with the dog and getting in the woods, I'm I'm really looking forward to. And then just bought my hunting license for PA. What was it Monday? And uh, it's I being a PA resident, you can hunt from September to February for hundred hundred and fifty bucks. I got um, five doe tags, a buck tag, pheasant tag, <laughs> archery tag. Rubbing in love tag. those whitetail populations, yeah. don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Migratory bird tag, you know, all, all that, all that fun stuff for Man. 125 bucks. So, hoping to fill the freezer. Yeah, I hope so. Get ready for a uh, flintlock again. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully you can make it out again. Hopefully it's not like a frozen tundra. Oh, it will be. <laughs> Great. Oh. Um, no, I've been talking it up, so expect some visitors. Good. Good. I got to get the gun fixed and uh, so that we have that extra gun. Nice. Cool. Um, well, no, glad to have you back. Um Glad, glad you're able to break away from the dog. If you need to to pause to go take a potty break, we totally understand. <laughs> so I have to I have to take elk breaks with mine because there was just an elk in my uh, neighbor's yard and my dog was barking up a storm at it. So <laughs> yeah, I understand. Court. That's awesome. <laughs> um. Well, let me uh let me briefly introduce uh leland and chris uh so leland brown 
He's the Oregon Zoo's non-lead hunting education coordinator and a lifelong outdoorsman. And uh, Chris Parrish is the president and CEO of the Peregrine Fund. So welcome, guys. And a guys. lifelong outdoorsman. <laughs> and a lifelong outdoorsman. <laughs> uh, welcome both to the Wild Fishing Game podcast. So if you guys want to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, I guess you guys can decide who wants to go first. Sure, I'll, I'll start off since I got introduced first. Um, you know, that tells you a little something about who's really the important one around here because they always leave the best for last, right? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I work for the Oregon Zoo. I um, will start from the beginning. I grew up in New Hampshire, so not far away from Corey there, uh, up in the North Woods. Got a degree in environmental biology, got a job doing invasive species removal in the Channel Islands off the coast of Southern California, um, oh, nice. um, San Clemente. So spent three, three years out there doing some protection work around some endangered bird species. Got a job up in Central California around um, Salinas Hollister down there on National Park doing feral pig removal stuff. Got introduced to non-lead ammo through all of that. Um, started using it. Stuff worked real well. Got a job in Hawaii. Started shooting pigs and goats and everything out there. Started talking all the folks I worked for into using non-lead there for um, for the stuff we were doing. In part because we were giving some of that meat away to locals um, so that they could make use of it, need it. And then this job came up in Oregon, and I said, you know what, I want to be one of the people leading that so that it doesn't get done the wrong way so we don't end up with all the issues and conflict and everything else that has happened in other places so um moved to oregon in 2015 been here ever since been running the oregon program and worked with chris and several other um colleagues to start the non-lead partnership in 2018 and we've been running that ever since trying to build up interest and momentum there so that was about as short as i can make it <laughs> <laughs> for that one <laughs> so now that we know a little bit about you guys i guess uh let's talk a little bit on the wild game side so what's uh where do you guys lie as far as a favorite wild game oh they're all so good. How do you, how do you <laughs> choose, man? Um, you know, I, I tend to be partial these days towards whatever's on top of the freezer and whatever I can experiment with, which is, you know, the easy kind of soft way out, right? It's like, oh, yeah, but but really it's part of that's the fun, right, is playing around with it and mm -hmm. trying to get whatever you've got available to to really tastes the way you want um i mean it's all good I, growing up in new hampshire you know my favorite introduction to game meat was moose um and there's still a soft spot in my heart for that just because it was some of the first game meat i ever ate um these days elk and blacktail are are kind of the staples for me so that's what i go with most of the time um not a huge bird hunter but i'll tell you what the, the turkeys i shot 
last year. I didn't get out very much this year. I didn't get one, but I could make some real damn good turkey. <laughs> so that's <laughs> tough. Um, yeah, it's too it's too hard to pick one. <laughs> I just can't do it. It's like I I try to, and then I go, oh, but what about this one? That was so good when I made that, or you know, this thing was real tasty. I really come around these days to using a lot more kind of Indian spices with yeah with some of the game meat. I've really been digging that a lot. Um, like I think curries those really and, like mas- like yeah. chicken masala type stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think those bold um, flavors b- bode really really well with the with the bold flavors of some of the game meats too. Yeah, they, they complement each other well. And um, I found a recipe a while back on. It must have been meat eater or something. I think Daniel Pruitt had a shank recipe that was like a osobuco Indian style osobuco, and that oh nice. Really, if I'm looking for something that's like gonna get people fired up about trying game meat for the first time, that's usually what I go towards. Because once it's done, it's just that slow cooked, strong flavors. You just can't beat it, and then you get a little bit of the marrow mixed in there, and it's fantastic. And I think too, like when you when you introduce folks uh, to that, like kind of that big meal, um, it's a bold it's a bold flavor from the beginning. So if they're mm-hmm. not used to kind of the flavors of wild game, they're not like surprised because you're already right. like, hey, try this with all these great spices in it, and also this delicious meat. And they're like, oh, whoa, yeah, this is this yeah. is great. It gets them away from like the, oh, this steak tastes kind of funny, right? Like if you yeah, just do yeah. like a straight steak with with game meat and doesn't taste like, you know, corn-fed beef, like, oh, mm-hmm. this is odd. But if, it, if that's already off from kind of the standard flavor, then they don't have that reaction. Yep. Um, I think we lost Chris. Uh, he may have got disconnected here. Yeah, his oh, internet no. wasn't wasn't super great there for a second. No. But. Um we can uh we can give him just a minute. If he doesn't make it back on, then uh we can just keep plugging along and we'll have to make some edits initially. Yeah, we can just say that he's got terrible internet and that's what he gets <laughs> <laughs> living up there. Um, I, fa- I found that the um the Indian spices work really well for a lot of the waterfowl out here, especially yeah. especially where I am out on the coast. You get a lot of that. Like we've talked about it, I talked about it a thousand times on the show here. Um, kind of like your marshy, your marshy goose, marshy swampy geese and ducks, and it's like people are like, oh no, nah, you're just like nah, that's just how they taste, and you got to get used to them. I brought them out to to Justin and some other folks and they were like, Oh yeah, there's something wrong with your ducks, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's like, I made an, an awesome tikka masala with, um, uh, I think it was a pintail, a couple pintail breasts. And then I recently discovered that mustard cuts through a lot of the, that flavor, like the real oh, swampy yeah. brackish flavor. So I'm planning on doing Wait, that. So hold on, hold on. Like, like mustard, Ground mustard, like mustard, uh, the the sauce, the the accompaniment. What? Um, yeah. Do you remember at Rendezvous the one night where I, I don't know if you were there. I think you may have been cooking for the um the first night, the dinner. But the uh, we put some duck or not duck goose wings in the cast iron, and just basically squirted French's yellow mustard all over them and and fried them up, and they turned out awesome. <laughs> 
Yeah, it like something happens, some chemical reaction happens, and it cuts out all that stuff. Hmm. So my, I have a whole goose in my freezer right now, and I want to do like a slow cooked kind of almost like mustard bar based barbecue sauce and break it down like that. Yeah, I was gonna say that like mustard barbecue probably is a easy, you know, you marinate yeah. in some of that and then slow cook it. Probably be awesome. Yeah, I mean, I had the same experience with some of the geese from just south of Portland here where I had them oh, yeah. and tried to cook them kind of like, oh, this will be good. You know, they've been eating, eating on the fields. They're probably pretty good. It had pretty strong livery kind of marshy flavor and yeah, switched it up to like a stronger marinade and they're fantastic that way. Yeah. Um, strong sugar soy marinade with them was, was good. Yeah, no salt because they're already salty enough. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. saltwater plants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely don't need more salt. This is interesting. I wonder if you could get behind like some of those uh, like Carolina-based, like real heavy vinegar barbecue sauces too. Probably, if that would. Yeah. Huh. It's where you have a research Maybe. project, I think, Colin. I'm gonna have to come out and eat the goose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fun to experiment with the, for see sure. What happens. I think I got yeah. a couple, a couple whole ducks, a couple whole geese in my freezer. So yeah, we'll see. We have to go uh, like wild food test kitchen. Just yeah, right. Go. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that'd be fun. Let me know when you're coming out to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man. I've got some. Like, I got I'm some. In, in. I got some tungsten laying around. I can contribute to the cause. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> Sweet. Well, let's. Uh, I don't think Chris is gonna make it back, unfortunately. So he was trying. He, he. Uh, it looks like he just got back onto the Google Doc, but I don't know what that means for getting back into this. Yeah. This form, but. <clears throat> well, I guess. Oh, well. Uh, what it, What do you got working next, recipe wise, Leland? What are you thinking? Uh, I don't know. I just came back. Uh, my um, my wife and I were in Europe for my brother-in-law got married. So I just got back last Friday from two weeks over there. So I'm like so behind with stuff that I, I don't even, we don't even have anything in the fridge yet. And it's like, we've been doing like <laughs> one fair. day at a time trying to get stuff figured out. So I got to sit down one of the next couple of days and actually take a look at what we got in the freezer and start making some plans. Um, nice nice yeah. still got some elk left that i gotta get through still got some turkey legs i gotta figure out what i plan on doing with those so that's kind of next on the list of looking around and seeing what i come up with i did like uh i did like a cassoulet with the turkey mm-hmm. legs turkey legs oh, yeah. and thighs and wings and man it came out really really good yeah that sounds good i'll have to take like a look at that bacon and beans and oof Mm-hmm. It's good. So, um, all right. Well, yeah, I'm not sure Chris is gonna make it. Bummer. But, all right. Well, I guess let's get let's get into it then. Um, so, how did the uh, the North American non lead partnership come around? Yeah. Well, I mean, I hit on that a little bit when mm-hmm. we were talking about my my origin story. Um, so let's. 20, 
10 or so, I got hired to do that feral pig project down in um, Central California. And as part of that, they basically said, hey, if you want to shoot pigs, you got to do outreach. Because around that time, California had recently passed the laws requiring non-lead ammo in a portion of the state. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't want to do outreach, um, but I also really wanted to shoot pigs. So I started doing <laughs> outreach. Um and that got me down this path, right? I, I started doing um, this removal project, started shooting pigs with non-lead, getting a lot of experience using it, doing a lot of testing, and then doing a bunch of outreach um, around this and talking with folks and figuring out what kind of information they were looking for. And in doing all of that, um, I also got to know some of these other, um, other folks like Chris and a few of our other partners. And then I left because I didn't want to do just outreach. I wanted to be shooting stuff. And the feral pig project came to an end. So I moved to Hawaii um, and was there for just under three years. But then when I moved back to Oregon, um, one of the first things I did was reach out to all these guys that I'd worked with before and say, hey, what's going on? Like, are y'all working together still? You know, you talking? What's the plan? What are we doing? And pretty quickly, we all started talking about the need to kind of do a bigger kind of continent-wide effort because, you know, these one-offs, Chris working in Arizona and with Utah to do stuff there, me working in Oregon, some of these guys trying to deal with all the blowback around the laws that got passed in California and share good information with people down there so that they could be successful. Um, we're all running into the same problems and there's like, how do we build consistency out? And that's where the idea of the partnership came from is how do we mm -hmm. create an organization where as these conversations happen we can help people through this process and what we feel is the most effective way which is working in cooperation with our fellow hunters um, and anglers here or there but you know we mostly focus on hunting these days um, in having this conversation and working with the state agencies working with the hunting organizations working with the hunters themselves and so that started 2015 and took a couple of years of work and effort and talking and planning in 2018 um, we launched the partnership with with a number of partners that we kind of had already built up over the years including um, Arizona uh, Game and Fish Utah Wildlife um, Division uh, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife and now we're looking at um, across the country um, across the continent, you know, Canada and U.S., we've got something like 44 partners, I think, at this point. Um, all hunting, kind of based organizations, few landowners, um, mostly hunting conservation groups, things like that. And the co-founders being, you know, Oregon Zoo, Institute for Wildlife Studies, which is the outfit I used to work for down in California. That's still running a lot of the outreach down there. And um, the Peregrine Fund. Um, kind of kicked it all off and been going ever since and yeah i'm looking at the your guys partners list and it's uh quite a good group of folks a lot of people doing a lot of good work across the country too yeah and you know the big thing for us is you know if we we're all about keeping hunting strong um making sure that hunting continues to be the leading one of the leading voices in conservation and we really feel strongly that the choice in ammunition is a really strong way to continue that, um, to make sure that when we say one shot, one kill, we're guarant 
we're guaranteeing that as much as possible because the remnants of our bullet are going to have zero impact on anything else. Mm -hmm. um, I think and that's, that's just, a, you know, good stewardship, right? Yeah. I think that's a good point you, you brought up is like that, that one shot focus on the one shot, one kill, but also too with the ammo selection. And, and I think that being both of those being pretty key features in my mind is sort of like talking points, I guess. And maybe you guys experience different, no, man, I, I think that's true. I mean, like, if you think about it, every single one of us, when we're choosing ammo and, and choosing to squeeze the trigger, we're looking to be as efficient and as effective mm -hmm. as possible on that animal. Whether it's a grouse flying through the trees or an elk, you know, or, you know, an antelope out there in the sagebrush, we're expecting that to, the ammunition to work and put that mm -hmm. animal on the ground. Um None of us wants to wound stuff. No one wants to, you know, chase something. No one wants to be responsible for or feel that kind of heartache of having something get away from us. Um, at the same time, there's some other stuff happening that we didn't know about for a long time, right? If we talk about weight retention on our ammunition and performance, bullets are losing 20 to 40% of the weight. It doesn't just disappear into thin air, right? It, it ends up somewhere. And it ends up along the path of that bullet from point of impact till point of exit. Um, and there's a lot of good research now that really documents this well. And a lot of people say, well, you know, my one shot couldn't possibly do that much. I, I recovered the bullet. It's like, yeah, you recovered the bullet, but it's 70% of what it was when it started. Mm -hmm. That 30% is now distributed through those lungs, maybe the heart, whatever those organs are that we're going to leave in the field, which is a fantastic food source for all this other stuff. Um, and it it's a, really is a pretty good food source for those other critters, especially that time of year, right? We're moving into winter. We're getting into the time where it's going to be tough sailing for a lot of wildlife, and they're looking for those easy sources of food. And if they're picking up that gut pile and... Uh, Sorry, I, I get irritated about this, so I'm just going to say it up front, right? People say, oh, I don't shoot it in the guts. Like, yeah, come on, man. You know what we're talking about. When you gut an <laughs> yeah. animal, we're not saying just the guts, right? You're talking about all the lungs and everything. So yeah. don't give me that. Like, you know what I'm talking about. You're just being, you know, you're just being a bit of a twerp about it, to put it lightly. <laughs> uh, trying not to curse. I'm trying to, like, you know, uh, I have a hard time. I grew up working in kitchens, like, yeah, cursing is what you do. <laughs> yep. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll dub something over that's more offensive. So, yeah. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. yeah, really make sure my boss listens. <laughs> yeah, we make sure I do real well at the zoo. Um, sorry, I lost track by by complaining about people talking about cup piles. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we're we're leaving these food sources out there, and it's you know, it's it's creating impacts that we didn't plan on. And for mm -hmm. me, that's the biggest thing, right? People, well, you know, I don't care if I, you know, kill a coyote. Great, me either. If I meant to, you know, yeah. I do things on purpose. My, I use well, my it, tools effectively, right? I think like, I, too, I don't like shooting, shooting a coyote intentionally and like it kind of dealing with the whole lead exposure, lead poisoning thing is like very too, very too drastic comparisons for sure. Right. Right. It's intentional and managed. Right? And that's the big thing. If we're going to talk about hunting as a well-managed conservation activity, which it is, right? If you mm -hmm. talk about 
the act of hunting, you know, we're talking about management. Um, there, there should be some ability to look at that and say, it's, this is how it's working. This is the impact that we're having. And we can address this by changing the management rules. Um, these things that we're doing on accident don't fall under that. Um, and so we've got to be careful of that. We've got to be aware of that. And we've got to address it so we can continue to take advantage of these wild resources. Because if we don't, you know, it's an easy point of attack on that use and saying, well, you guys aren't managing this part of it. So why can we, why do we trust you to manage the rest of it? Um, and you get, so. yeah, you're, you're right. It goes back to that, that stewardship piece and, and even, you know, it's, a we are, we are the, the keepers. What is it? We're the keepers of our resources for the next generation. And it's like, yeah. if, if our careless mistakes lead to a decline, then really, who's who's going to turn around and be like oh yeah those guys back then they were not good stewards i mean we we do that now with past generations when you talk about over hunting and overfishing like uh so you, you can't point the finger what is it you can't point a finger when there's four pointing back at you or three whatever it is three. <laughs> right i don't know yeah <laughs> three yeah <laughs> I mean, Three. my thumb doesn't go that way, but I get it just right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, and that's for me, that's, that's the big, how do we protect both the tradition of hunting, the use of these resources and continue to conserve our wildlife and be good stewards at the same time. For me, the use so, of non-lead is one of those. It's one of those yeah. ways we do that. How, how do you see that, that continuity growing and how do you see more, more folks getting involved? I mean, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of, a lot of that happen, right? I mean, you just look at the number of partners that we've got now, um, over the last four years and you can see that it's shifting, right? We went from starting with four or five partners to now 40 something. That's, that's pretty solid engagement. The other side of it is we're seeing a lot of different states and organizations looking for ways to engage. We're getting requests from people saying, how do we do this? How do we do it in a way that that just makes sense both for managing wildlife and being good stewards, but also for hunters? Because that's the biggest thing. One of the biggest things for me is I do not want this to turn into something that disrupts our ability to hunt. I want it to be something that continues to build and support our ability to hunt. Um, and and we're seeing that happen, right? And you, you get a you know, a lot of folks, even just invites to these podcasts, right? I mean, mm -hmm. five, six years ago, getting an invite on a podcast like this was, uh, wasn't really happening, right? People weren't having the conversation. Um, people may have been aware of it, but there was no, no real way to have that conversation. There wasn't anyone to talk to for a lot of time. And I was thinking about, uh, like, I remember, so I was back in California in 2010 to 2015, kind of like mm -hmm. during that that time period of like after the law was passed and like hunters were kind of trying to figure out how to navigate it and, and sort of what to do. And it was just like, I remember thinking about it and us even going hunting up in those areas where the, the lead free restrictions were. And I just like, I couldn't wrap my mind around it and like, you know, uh, forgive me, but I grew up in like Southeastern Oklahoma and it's just like you hunted with what you had, you, you went to the store and bought and did it and like never yeah. thought anything else. And I was just like lead free. 
And I was just like, I don't like my yeah, my I mind. Mean, the first question is, what the hell is that? <laughs> right? yeah. Like, I, I never even heard it. And that was my response, right? When I got hired to do that feral pig project, I had heard about it because the company I was working for had already started doing some outreach. So I'd kind of like, oh yeah, they're just doing something about this non-lead stuff, but I didn't know what any of it actually was. Like, I didn't have any idea who the manufacturers were. I didn't know what the bullets were. I didn't mm-hmm. know where I could get them. I didn't know any of that stuff. So I started. I didn't know how they worked. I started, I said, look, man, I'll, I'll consider it, but I need to see the evidence. I need to see the papers, the science that documents that this is an actual issue because I'm not going to get involved in something that I don't think is real. And so I started reading it and I was like, ah, crap, how did I not know this? You know, I was a pr- professional wildlife biologist whose job was to shoot and kill animals. You know, that's a standard slightly above, you know, your public hunter who just is buying a tag and exp- going out and obeying the laws right i should have been at a higher standard um, and i didn't know it so the expectation that your general hunter buying a tag would know it just it's not possible it's it's a flawed ideology which you know and we got to talk about california a little bit right like you got to mm-hmm. remember it cdfw didn't pass that law mm-hmm. um you know Everyone's like, oh, it's the Condor folks. Condor folks didn't pass that law. What happened is people did some research, Chris being one of them, did mm-hmm. some research, published it, and then some kind of other groups uh, that I won't name went to the legislature and said, you guys have to do something. Here's this research. Well, the researchers were saying, wait, don't do that, and got a law passed that forced CDFW to do something. And then happened again in 2013 for the statewide stuff. Was that the right thing to do? I Personally, I don't really think so. I think we could have had a lot of success by talking with our fellow hunters and saying, hey, mm-hmm. man, we're finding some stuff out. Let's talk about how we solve this problem. Um, I think and, maybe maybe it created some some unforeseen issues or maybe foreseen issues, however you want to think about it from whoever's perspective is presenting it and uh, maybe kind of slowed down that movement. Cause I think you're right. And like from a hunter's perspective, like those conversations, especially with biologists and, and law enforcement folks, like those matter. Yeah. Yeah. The, for other, sure. the other side of the aisle, it's like, if you're telling me I have to do this and you're not giving me an option to opt in, like it automatically makes me kind of question everything. <laughs> Yeah, well, I told you I grew up in New Hampshire, right? You know the state motto in New Hampshire, live free or die. So, you know, (laughs) that gives you a little idea about where I generally come from with the idea of doing a whole bunch of regulation before even talking about it. So it's like, Mm -hmm. that's just not the way to go about it. Um, And yeah, I I mean, I I listened to your guys' previous episode with John McAdams, and he mentioned that, right? Saying, you know, hey, I don't really have an issue with non-lead bullets. They work pretty well. Um, I've used them quite a bit. I think they're effective, but you tell me what to do that I have to do something and I immediately get my hackles up mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> like who yeah. doesn't, right? If you're hanging out having, you know, doing what you believe is right. And someone tells you, oh, you can't do that anymore. And doesn't give you any real reason why that you understand it's not coming from someone you trust. Why would you be like, oh yeah, okay. That sounds great. Um, it just doesn't work that way. No one works that way. I sure as hell don't work that way. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so through the work that you guys have been doing with the non-lead partnership and, and then, of course, all your partners, as we look at like this kind of trickle down, do you think 
Do you think the the road's kind of getting smoothed out a little bit? I, I think it is. I mean, it's not easy. Don't get me wrong. Like, things mm-hmm. aren't easy still. I mean, you still run across a lot of people. All you got to do is go on any forum and read a forum discussion around non-lead ammo, and you can see all these different opinions. Um, but I think in person, especially, like, when we go and we talk to these folks, like, we'll do these workshops. We'll come in. We'll present what we know from the science, what best available science is telling us, how we understand how this these exposures are happening, why we, you know, the, the evidence is pointing towards ammunition as the source, um, what, you know, what the potential impacts of that are, what the research is telling us there, and then what the options are that allow us to be effective hunters, but also, you know, avoid those issues. Um, pretty consistently, we get, you know, real positive response. And often from folks who coming in were pretty negative about it and were like, this is an anti-hunting bunch of bull. Um, you know, all you got to do is talk to Chris and me for 10 minutes and you know we're not anti-hunting, right? I mean, like, I, I'm, all, I'm all about going out there. I just want to make sure that we're doing it in a way that protects it long-term. Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> you had mentioned some of the, the research uh What's kind of some of the the research that you guys see supporting? Yeah. yeah, I mean, the basic is, right? I mean, it's documentation of weight loss from ammunition and where that weight loss ends up. Um, you know, you're seeing on average in both, you know, controlled testing and when you're looking at, you know, field testing of ammunition when you shoot an animal, you can x-ray it and lead shows up really well in x-rays, right? Because it's a heavy metal and it reflects all those x-rays right back. It's a bright white spot. Um, So you x-ray stuff and you count and you see how many fragments are there. And on average, you're looking at over a hundred fragments per bullet from a lead lead core bullet. And that doesn't really seem to matter too much. I mean, it it varies depending on bullet construction, some more, some less. Um, but even bonded bullets consistently, you're seeing some of that weight loss happening. Um, and, you know, you hit bone, that's going to increase. You have a close shot, that's going to increase. It's further away, and you don't hit bone, it's going to decrease. So you see that variation happening. Um, on the other side of that is where does that end up, right? You do these testing, and you x-ray whole animal, and then you x-ray, you know, the gut pile and the lungs and all that, and you see, hey, a lot of these fragments are ending up in the things that we leave in the field. So it's not just lost animals, right? It's the animals when we're successful in leaving that source behind, we're still leaving that for other scavengers to feed on. Um, And then the next step, of course, is, okay, well, is that actually having an impact on those animals? So they do blood testing and they do blood testing across the year. And they say, okay, well, in the spring and summer, um, we see reduced levels of lead exposure, but all of a sudden, as these carcasses or the remains of animals are in the field, we see lead exposure rates going up, and they're going through the roof, and they match pretty closely with the number of carcasses on the ground. So there's been multiple studies looking at that, saying, hey, spring and summer, not much exposure, fall, winter, when those carcasses are available, ton of exposure at really high levels of exposure. Um, and a lot of this is done in eagles and ravens. They, they tend to be kind of the focal species a lot of times. California condor is another one um, because they were so closely watched as an endangered species. Mm-hmm. Every bird was being tested. They got a lot of kind of baseline information there saying, hey, this is a potential source of exposure and then expanded that across all these other species. Um, 
It's a great study out of Quebec looking at moose harvest. And basically they looked at ravens, blood levels in this population as they captured birds and saw at the start of moose season, levels of exposure are pretty low. But as they climbed, or as the number of carcasses climbed through the season, right? You get a long, go through the season, you get more and more animals on the ground. You saw a corresponding increase in blood lead levels in those ravens, in that raven population as they captured birds. Then they also did the isotope studies. And the isotope studies showed that the type of lead matched the type of lead used in bullets um, and did not match the type of lead used in it that was remnant from like leaded gasoline and things like that, which would be in mm -hmm. lichen and soil. Um, so as lead levels climbed, the isotope in the blood changed to match um, when higher levels of exposure in the blood change to match the type of lead that's recycled lead used in bullets. It's not to say there are other sources of lead out there, right? There's, there's studies out of like Coeur d'Alene um, where they've got some of the mining waste and they've got pretty strong evidence that those point sources are um, sources of lead exposure. It's just these are one of some of the ones that are distributed widely across the landscape. Where, sure. you know, you, and it's a food source that you see them feeding on. Um, yeah. People will bring up all sorts of, oh, well, it could be this, it could be that. It's like, okay, that's cool, but we don't see birds feeding on that. Um, and if that was happening, if it was one of these other sources, you would see it happening consistently across the year, right? If it was soil, there wouldn't be a spike when carcasses availability increased because the be soil like the is going to be the same the all standard. year. standard, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? Availability is the same across the year. What's changing is this availability of this new food source. Um, you see the same thing happening with, um, you know, like ground squirrel shooting. Um, and that's slightly different because now you're talking about nestlings um, and golden eagles and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so they see when golden eagles are nesting closer to areas where they have ground squirrel shooting, you have higher levels of lead exposure in the nestlings because they've got an easy source of food that they can bring back to them real quick. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's the baseline for a lot of the kind of research. It's It's linking in, you know, exposure in these populations across the year and we're talking you know we're not talking about small levels of exposure we're talking about anywhere from 25 to in some studies 90 percent of the population of eagles having high levels of lead during that time of year wow so we're not talking about just like oh it's just a couple um mortalities are a whole different thing like it gets confusing because you know, you test these birds in, you release them, and sometimes you just don't know what happens to them. So we know that, okay, these exposure rates are happening at these different levels in this percentage of these populations. What's the long-term outcome of that? Well, we know that at certain cases, it's mortality. Um, but lead doesn't just kill things. It also can change behavior, um, impact kind of long-term survival. It can impact reproduction. Um, so there's been some recent research that's come out in the last year or so that says that we're actually reducing growth rates of like bald eagles. Um, it was one of the big ones. You're seeing a reduction in growth rate in bald eagles and in golden eagles as well, continent-wide. Um, meaning that, hey, we're bald eagles are off the endangered species list, but they're still not... Um, to historic levels, right? I mean, they're they're not endangered anymore. That doesn't mean they're back to where they were in you know the early 1800s or whatever. Um, they're still yeah, down. Just just because they're not on the endangered list doesn't mean we shouldn't protect them and keep an eye out for them, right? right. And 
I'm a little concerned in, in part because there, there actually are laws protecting bald and golden eagles outside of the Endangered Species Act. And mm-hmm. I'm worried that at some point, and, you know, I, I worry sometimes about talking about this, but it's important for us as, as hunters to realize is um, some group's going to use that to sue. There's just a mm-hmm. way, you know, it's the way some of the, the model of some of the environmental groups is to to litigate, to create the change that they're looking for. And if they're able to make a legitimate claim that we're having these negative impacts through our hunting ammunition, that's a that's a problem for us as mm-hmm. hunters. Um, and so I think we leads, should. That leads right. to like a, a larger like California scenario all over again, right. where instead of where the hunters hunters as conservationists are leading the charge, it's well now there's going to be more of those negative impacts. Uh, you know, across the board, right. nobody's going to have it, a choice. It, right, and it doesn't, and it doesn't give you that. Um, you know, if I think about this, what I'm thinking about long a lot of the time is how we're presenting hunting to the non-hunting public. Mm-hmm. Um, I just saw something today. I was in a meeting about an anti-poaching deal happening in Oregon, um, and they were presenting on some of the support numbers for hunting, and you got like 85% support for hunting in in oregon which is pretty damn good for a state a lot of people look at and go oh there's a bunch of liberal tree huggers over there um (laughs) the 85 percent solid right but it's easy to have that eroded away and how do we build that number rather than having it be eroded how do we build it so we got 95 percent or even 90 percent because there's certain people who just will never be supportive of hunting the idea of killing an Mm -hmm. animal just isn't on their on their radar and that's fine that's a legitimate personal choice um but we want those who do eat meat who do consider eating you know an animal okay to also support hunting and one of the ways we can do that is to continue to be leaders and make sure that we're not being forced to do things but we're creating choices that when people look at hunting they say oh look at all those good things they did look at the things they did to recover elk look at the things they did to recover wild turkey um Look at the things they're doing to protect eagles and ravens and all these other non-target species that they will never hunt, right? Because a lot of the arguments we'll hear about hunting and conservation is, oh, well, you just did that because you want more of them to hunt. It's like, yeah, I did. I wanted to hunt. I wanted to hunt wild turkeys. That's why we work so hard on recovering them. That doesn't mean it's not a good thing. But this effort removes that argument. It says we're not ever going to be hunting bald eagles. Like, there's just, I mean, it's not going to happen. Um, yeah. But we can still do something and have that be kind of feather in the cap, you know, long term. Like when we say hunting there. is conservation, <laughs> right? It's not because we just buy tags. It's because we yeah. do stuff, right? Yep. We have to do things. Um, and this is one of those tools that we can use, one of those things that we can do. Nice. I feel like Colin, I've been you... rambling a lot. <laughs> so you can tell me to <laughs> shut up good. anytime. <laughs> Colin, you got any thoughts? No, I'm I'm taking it all in. Those are all like really good points. Um I can tell you, you've practiced that speech a lot. <laughs> I mean, practice the points a lot. It, yeah, I mean, it's the thing is, it's it's not even like you say practice, and it's like, yeah, I guess. But it's not like I sat in the mirror, right? Right. right I just, yeah. I had these conversations with people over and over, and people will fight me on one thing or another, and it's like, okay, you're right about that. Let me rethink that then. What's the, um, what's the best argument you've heard against lead free access 
like accessibility is, is lower yeah okay yeah that, yeah that was where i was gonna go because it's harder to find price of ammunition is just climbing climbing and it's hard to find yeah. anything so, yeah. so when you add that non-lead factor to yeah. it it's just even Although, longer Sometimes it's easier to find non-lead these days than it is to find some yeah, of the lead I stuff, right? So, steel shot so for me, like, price is one thing, and I think people, you know, if you compare, like, your, like, budget ammunition lines, you pay a little bit more for non-lead generally because it's a premium. It's usually in the premium line of ammunition. At the same time, you're usually paying the same price you'd pay for premium ammunition. So if you're willing to pay for, like federal vital shock or something you'd be paying the same price whether you're buying lead or non-lead okay at this point for a box of factory ammo the question is when you go into your local shop is it sitting there on the shelf right and that's a real that's a real challenge um because depending on the shop it may or may not um and then you run into problems like california or new york where they pass laws about ordering ammunition online and it becomes even harder, right? If you can't can't order online, then access becomes even more difficult because you're reliant on whatever they've got on the shelf. Gotcha. Um, so how do we change that? I don't know. It's a bit of a catch-22, right? Because you know manufacturers will always tell us, "Hey, we'll make what people are buying," and talk to people and they say, "Yeah, I'd love to try it, but I can't find it, you know, at the local shop, so I'm not buying it. I just buy what they've got." And it's like, well, which one comes first? Right. I don't know. We're, that's one of some of the stuff we're working on through the partnership is trying to support folks through that, make sure manufacturers are supportive, aren't actually losing business, um, making sure retailers have folks who are going to come in and buy ammunition, all of those different things. It's not an easy thing. There's no denying that. Uh, I, I have so, a little bit of experience with um, non-lead, with the, the veteran pheasant hunt that, that I helped put on. Uh, heavy shot donates their heavy bismuth, mm -hmm. and I know those those are expensive boxes yeah. of ammunition. But they, from my experience, they hit hard and they put the bird down pretty quick. So it just, but buying a uh, you know a case of those can get expensive quick. Yeah, for sure, and it it becomes one of those kind of like. Okay, at some point, it becomes a little bit of a value decision, right? It's like, uh, where where does this fall within my choices? Um, and you know, I'd like I'd love personally like to see people choosing non lead because because all the reasons I've already stated, and we'll probably state again, you know, in five minutes. But <laughs> at the same time, I I can't force people, you know. People will say, oh, well, we can pass a law. We'll force people to do it. It's like, bullshit. You can't force people to do anything. You can give them the information and the tools and the know-how to make a choice. Even in California, they're still making a choice, right? Because you can still go buy lead ammo. Mm -hmm. um, if they don't believe the law is worthwhile, they can still go buy and use non-lead ammo for hunting. They might get fined if they're caught, but they're still making a choice there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about that, uh, the concept of like voting with your do dollar, like yeah. United States, it's a, you know, we're, we're, we're a capitalist country and, you know, yeah. you, you support the businesses you support, whether you realize it or not with your money. And so if you go and you're, 
you're purchasing non-lead ammo, then you are, in fact, supporting that that form of conservation and, and the movement of non-lead. If you go out and, you know, in a conversation you tell me, no, like, non-lead's great. It's, you know, I definitely believe in it. I'm, I'm with the values that that movement supports. And then you go out and do different, then you're not, you're not supporting it, not in the way that you should be. No, but I mean, I, I also want to be really clear. Like, there's there's ways to help that don't mm-hmm. involve using non lead, right? You folks in Arizona for the last over a decade at this point, and I wish Chris could be here because you know he could tell you all about this. But you know they've got voluntary programs on the Kaibab Plateau deer hunts where they've got you know over eighty percent participation for over a decade and that's either using non-lead or packing out the entire animal including all the organs and people are packing these organs into trash bags and carrying them out with them you want to talk about dedication to conservation yeah someone packing their gut pile into a trash bag and hauling it out i'm not doing that it's way easier for me to use non-lead bullet and (laughs) they're effective and they work well i'll just do that man but these guys, you know, these guys and gals are, are doing that. And if you can't find non-lead ammo, that is an option. That's something that you can do. It's it's way harder, in my opinion. Um, but it's definitely something that you can do. The only problem for me with that is, you know, if you happen to have one of those bad days where you end up wounding an animal, now you still have some issues there. Or, you know, the other side of that is you're not leaving that resource now for all the other Mm -hmm. critters out there. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. That, yeah. Wow. That jogs my memory. I have heard of people packing out the organs before and I forget where I heard it. It must've been a couple of years ago. Um, I'm trying to think there's a, it's a lot harder to do with elk though is the problem, right? (laughs) You know, mule deer, you can pull it off. You try to haul out an elk gut pile or a moose gut pile or a bison gut pile. A hundred pounds of, not solid stuff just floating around in a trash bag. Yeah. <laughs> that thing's going to be all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Try carrying and, a trash bag full of water and see how it works out for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was just thinking about, um, oh gosh, there's a, there's a military base in Florida. That's got a, a big, uh, like bombing and air Eglin. reserve range and Eglin. Uh, is it Eglin? I forget. What's the, do you remember what the name of the, the specific area is? Oh, the one that we were looking at? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I forget that one. Eglin's down by, like, south of Miami. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of the name of the exact place, but that that's what it, it – if you hunted deer out there, you had to, like – you had to take the whole deer out, and they had a specific, like, processing station, and you had to discard the, the guts while you mm-hmm. were there. And uh, it was very regulated, and you couldn't leave them in the field. And um, I'm wondering if that definitely was in line with that regulation or if there was something else – yeah, I mean, I don't know. Chris has been doing some work with different DOD folks. Like, they've been working out on White Sands, doing um, some of this documentation of scavenger use of these mm-hmm. kind of remnant remains, you know, these remains. Um, and they're they're really popular with scavengers again, right? Like golden eagles, all these things. Like, you're getting a lot of animals coming in and feeding on, on one gut pile. We did the same thing in, on Zumwalt Prairie Preserve over in northeast oregon when we were out there we shot an elk through gut you know camera up on the gut pile i mean he had 
I think within two hours, we had several raven, ravens and, and several gold, immature golden eagles on it feeding. And this one was huh. shot with a non-lead bullet. But it was really a, a solid demonstration of the kind of potential impact you can have. Because you're not talking about one animal. You're talking about a lot of different animals coming in and feeding on this. They had a, there was a bear sitting on it for three days chasing coyotes off it. <laughs> it's pretty entertaining to watch. Um <laughs> But it's, you know, we're not, we don't see a lot of impact on bears. We don't see a lot of impact on coyotes. Part of it's like, are people even looking? Um, we didn't know about a lot of the avian or, you know, the bird stuff until we started looking at it. Um, people have done a little bit looking at bears and other things, but digestive systems are different. Risk is lower because of the digestive system. So there's a lot of different things going into that. Um, Justin, and then I'm, it was I'm curious. Avon Park. Avon Park. Yeah, yep. that's it. Um, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm curious too. Like I've I've seen mentioned places, uh, you know about about fishing as well, and like the use of lead lead and fishing and all that. Have you guys seen seen uh, the results of that? Yeah, and even that, right, seems to come back to bird species is what it mm-hmm. what seems to happen mostly. So if you look like up in the northeast, right, you look at Maine, um, New Hampshire, Vermont, I think even Massachusetts, I'm not sure what other states in there, but they were seeing close to 60%, I think it was, of, of common loon mortalities being from lead exposure from fishing weights. And so they actually, you know, that becomes, hey, you've got that much of mortality being caused by an anthropogenic source like fishing weights, mm-hmm. the agencies have to do something about that. It's just they don't have any any way to avoid but passing regulation there. So I think you're actually required to use fishing weights under an ounce, um, have to be non-lead on, up in those areas. Hmm. Um, you know, that's not something that, as a partnership, that's not our role, right? We we don't have that regulatory authority or responsibility. We're here to provide best available information about what the science tells us, try to look at what the tools are that we can use, work with those agencies or, you know, the hunters and hunting organizations to come up with kind of, we think a lot more about best practices rather than regulation kind of from our side is like, what's the best way that we continue to hunt, be successful and, what are the tools that we have available to make sure we are avoiding these, you know, conflicting impacts with what we want to accomplish? Sure. No, I, I think that's, yeah, that's perfect. And, so yeah, I mean, you, uh, see it, you see it other places too. I think like uh, trumpeter swans, you see some of the fishing mm-hmm. weight stuff. Again, for me, a lot of it is how do we talk to people about ways that we can address this? Yeah. Make it work. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think, unfortunately, we're starting to, wind down on time <laughs> definitely a good conversation though but um what's a good way for people to get in touch with uh with, with you guys uh if they want to get involved yeah uh i mean nonleadpartnership.org we've got a website where you can look at all of our partners you can read um kind of the resolution that all our partners are required to sign um read a little bit about us chris and i's contact info are on there we're also on instagram and facebook non-lead partnership for both since those are things are all linked um i don't think we've got a twitter account i can barely keep up with the other social media (laughs) sorry um i know some people like that but it just i i don't do it um 
So yeah, those are the easiest ways. I mean, you can you can get my phone number off the website. So you got a question, you're worried about something, you can call or shoot an email. It's no problem. Um, that's what we're here for, is to help with that. Sweet. Well, uh, this is kind of like our as we wrap up here, we leave uh, leave a little bit of room for everybody to give a last thought. And uh, me and you're the guest here, Leland Day. Do you have a, a last thought for us? <laughs> I mean, we didn't even get into ballistics and terminal performance and all these other things that I usually love talking about, right? I mean, that's like that's usually the stuff that I uh, I really get into. I guess um, we'll have to have you back on. Well, yeah, we could do that for sure. Um, I know you guys talked about it a little bit the last um, mm-hmm. last podcast, but it, it's really that stuff's really interesting to me. I spent a lot of time, you know, shooting and working on that stuff, but. You know, I just encourage folks to, you know, if you haven't tried non-lead ammunition, if you're worried about it, you know, take, glad you listened to this podcast. Hopefully we gave you a little bit of information. Go check out, you know, our website. We've got a bunch of other podcasts and videos and other stuff that we've done. Um, and don't be scared of it, right? I mean, you know, a lot of people are afraid that this is a slippery slope or, or something like that. And I think it's really the opposite, right? It's It's a step up to support hunting long-term. Um, and if you're into this for the food and, and you have any concerns about, about lead, which, you know, we didn't, we didn't touch into either. Right. I mean, that's a personal choice. Man, I just I opened up a whole, whole nother can of worms, right? You're just gonna, definitely going to have to have us back. I guess we'll get Chris on a, <laughs> on a, uh, stable internet connection. Um, but the thing here is, you know, there's options out there, right? If you're a new hunter, if you've been a hunter for a while, there's options that allow you to continue hunting and you can completely sidestep any of these concerns um, if you have them. Um, you know, don't, don't be afraid to try some of these tools and see if they'll work for you because in my experience, they're great, great bullets, work really well. Same as anything else, make sure they shoot well, make sure you can hit your target and then put them to work, get animals on the ground and start cooking. Yeah. All right, Colin, you got any other thoughts? Um, yeah, just that since I started hunting, I, I kind of started hunting later in my life than a lot of other people. Well, I guess not so much now, but probably when I was around like 24, so like seven years ago. Um, but I immediately sought out lead-free ammo um, for the rifle that I had at the time. And, uh, I mean, since then I've only bought lead, lead-free ammo for, whether it's for waterfowl, upland fowl, uh, big game. Um, and yeah, I've, I've shot an elk, shot a deer with entirely lead free, um, shot plenty of ducks, geese, pheasants with it. Um, so it's not, it's not like this, uh, like you were saying, it's not like an, an ammunition that's lower quality and can't get the job done. It absolutely gets the job done. Uh, and there are a lot of companies out there right now that are definitely kind of advertising for that too. Um, well, my rifle ammo is I mean, not so like plug them but is federal and it works just as good as any any other ammo that they have um so yeah i think it's it's a good cause to get behind i think it's good to spread the word about like you said spread the word about the um the detriments behind using lead ammo and then let me let people make their own decision rather than telling them what they need to do i think that's a really important concept to keep in the back of your mind other than that thanks for coming on this is a really good conversation yeah. Corey, you got any, any last thoughts for us? I, I wouldn't say I'm 
close-minded to to try and non-lead ammo. It's just it hasn't really come up until relatively recently. You know, with heavy shot donating the the bismuth and my wife mentioning it to me, seeing something and mentioning about non-lead ammo. So, you know, I guess I'm more, and after this conversation, I'm more open-minded to it. Um, it's just I got to work through all of my other ammo first before I, I start buying the non-lead stuff. But uh, thanks for coming on, Leland. I, pre- I appreciate it. It was a good conversation, good, uh, a lot of good information. So hopefully we can get you back on. Yeah, and uh, I, I'll, I'll echo what these guys said. Thanks for, thanks for making the time, uh, Leland, and, and definitely sorry we couldn't chat with Chris. To me, like this, this the, the lead-free, um, the thoughts and ideas around lead-free are definitely growing. And, and you know, as you, as you hear the rumors sort of dispelled and the conversations had, and I appreciate the chats with very educated folks like Leland and, and Chris, and they present some good solid evidence that's backed by science which when you debate things like these oftentimes uh some of the folks that push back don't have that sort of scientific background or support to argue otherwise and and it uh sort of waters down both sides of it when you just have two people that know a little bit about something trying to argue a lot about something it doesn't really make sense but the more i sort of think about it and the more i wrap my head around it the more i'm like you know what i definitely need to be uh more conscious and uh, it went back to sort of what we were talking about at the very beginning of like being good stewards and understanding your impact beyond just that single animal and, you know as a hunter i don't want to i don't want to hurt an animal beyond like what i need to do to to harvest it like i don't want to see detrimental effects i don't I don't like shooting animals with younger that have, you know, cubs or fawns or anything like that for the undue hardship it creates. Same thing when you think about scavengers and other animals that are feeding on it. And we didn't get to touch on it, but I want to have another podcast on it uh, about the the food consumption side from a human perspective and lead. Like there is not a lot of support out there that shows it, but there is some. Um and I think I think we need to grab those folks and have some conversations and start thinking holistically about this too. You know, uh, there's a lot of, as Leland mentioned, personal choice when it comes to the consumption side of from from a human standpoint. But I think education is good. Uh, you don't know what you don't know. So uh, with that, I uh, appreciate the time that they both gave us this evening. And and uh, for everybody else out there, think about lead free. Dig in, research, uh, make a good decision, a good decision that you support, either way. But with that, uh, be sure to make sure you're following uh, Non-Lead Partnership over on social media. And when you're done there, make sure you're following us at Harvesting Nature. Lots of cool things going on, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the show. And then whatever podcast platform you're listening to, punch that five-star button. Leave us a review. Tell us we're doing right or, you know, tell us we're doing wrong. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night.